Welcome to the podcast of data and analytics in business. We will learn from the leading industry experts using data and analytics to solve the problems and create values in practice. We will also learn where the industry is heading to and how data and analytics will shape the industry in the future. Most importantly, how they are preparing their business for digital transformation and disruption in the future. I'm your host, Jason Tan, and thank you for listening. Hello, Jamie. Welcome to the Analytics Show podcast. I'm so excited to have you here, especially we are in the city, uh, same city, but uh, we'll do it just via Zoom. It's just fine, but we definitely should catch up for coffee sometime. Absolutely. Thank you so much for the invitation, Jason. Now, I read uh, your article in the book about the COVID-19 pandemic. I think it's geospatial information and community resilience. I think the, the, the word of resilient really resonate to me. Um, but also you title it as what COVID-19 open data pandemic. Can you please give us a quick rundown about this article for those who are interested? I think it also provides a context about what we will be discussing later. Yeah, look, it's, it's the great precursor. Um, I was honoured to be asked by the University of Melbourne to contribute to this uh, amazing book that they were putting together uh, around the concept of community resilience in a post-COVID-19 world, which we we sadly haven't got to, but we're we're starting to come out the other side now. Um, Open data is my speciality. So I really sat there and I thought, what has COVID-19 done to the world of open data that wasn't happening beforehand? And what I noticed were trends, behaviours, there was this changing approach to data from a needing to cover to not share it perspective to sharing it for the greater good. So when we think of COVID-19, we started to see private firms, big pharmaceuticals, medical research scientists, governments around the world actively sharing health data, scientific data, academic data that previously would have been deemed too risky, private in nature, sensitive. We can't share that Mm. because it could re-identify somebody or there were a number of reasons why traditionally it wouldn't have been shared. But COVID-19 was such a significant risk people stopped asking permission to share the data and shared it, hoping that there would be forgiveness afterwards if the reward outweighed the risk. And Mm. largely it has. We started to see uh, genome sequencing starting to be mapped and shared. We saw vaccination uh, formulas being created at a faster rate than we've ever seen before. We had governments sharing their, their safety plans, all sorts of things that just would not have been possible if privacy had been the number one reason that the data wasn't shared, or worse, the potential missed economic benefit that private companies often link to their data is it's proprietary in nature. So the pandemic saw this, we're not going to ask permission, we're going to share it because the reward is so great. And at the end of the article, I, I said, I hope that this sort of mentality that data has greater value if it can actually be used rather than kept secret would Mm. be prolonged. I'm not going to say my crystal ball is saying that we won't slip back into old habits, but I do think that people started to see the value of that sharing data um, for specific 
you know, beneficial outcomes. So that was really the context around the piece that I wrote. And I hope that that mentality would be seeing the similar trend that where people, so many people have tasted the benefit of working from home now, and it is going to be more of a permanent feature, not necessarily 100%, but at least allowing that greater flexibility. I hope that would be applied to this mentality where open data is actually not as scary as people would have thought. Do you think that could be the case? Oh, look, I would like to hope it is. Um, I remember having conversations with um, some of my corporate colleagues, even back at the end of 2019, when COVID was really kicking off, about what COVID would mean for traditional work practices. You know, this concept of if you're not in the office, you're not working. Or if I, as a boss, I can't see you, I can't trust you. Mm. And what it's done is it's, I think, made companies and and um executives realise that productivity can remain, in some cases, it can be even higher when people are working efficiently and effectively remotely. Mm. But then we have the other side of it, which this is going totally off topic, but if you look at real estate and you look at commercial values and who owns a lot of the big buildings in the big cities and how they're tied to pension funds and superannuation funds, Mm. and if nobody has to go back into the office, who pays for those buildings so I do think we are going to see this um, dichotomy between continued efficiency and um, employee satisfaction versus big business Mm. having to balance the bottom line I um I would like to think somewhere in between will actually be the winner where yes you might have to go into the office for a couple days a week and we'll keep the theory of collaboration and sharing of, of knowledge but maybe people will be able to work from home several times a week when formally they weren't permitted to. Mm, mm. So what inspired you to write about this topic, about the open data pandemic? I have been writing, lecturing, um, educating on open data for, for a number of years now. In fact, if I look back into my, my previous careers, data has always been central to everything I've done. Now, not by design, it was more of that reflection. I looked back and went, huh, I was a technical chartist in the markets. I was an analyst in the military. I loved all the financial statements and the financial analysis in banking. And you start to see that the data has so many different forms out there, whether it's geospatial with maps, whether it's numbers in tables or or words. Um, Data is so diverse. But what really, really excites me is what data can actually do. Mm. If you think of it, data is, I've had people say it's the new oil. It is the mechanism that drives the technology advancement. Without the data, the machines can't keep producing outcome. Data is the fuel. So if you think of it that way, it's a case of where are the new sources of the fuel? What's actually going to power the machines? And this is Mm. where we start to say, Should very large companies restrict that movement of data? Should they hold it? You know, we talk about big tech. We start to look at some of the American brands that are are often being criticised for collecting large amounts of consumer data, often without them realising. But if no data is being shared, it really makes this unequal economic battle between the giants and all the small companies that can't get the fuel 
to actually produce the products or the services they want to provide. And I think that is the beauty and hopefully where the um, open data comes into the picture. Now, I'm super excited to talk about this, but I want you to tell us a little bit more about your current role uh, of the chapter lead ANZ at FData. Yeah, so I took over this region about 18 months ago, FData being a global not-for-profit focused on um, advocating and lobbying for uh, initially the fintech communities, um, financial service providers and, and industry around the world as different countries and regions go through the revolution into open banking and open finance. Um, but in Australia, we're a little bit unique. As many of your listeners would, would be aware, we're going through what's called a consumer data right evolution, mm. which means we're not just looking at banking. So I am able to employ all of my open data experience across various segments and industries to apply those principles now to the consumer data right. But FData commenced in... Uh, 2015, apologies to the boss if I got that date wrong, um, it was originally stood up in the UK by the um, Open Banking Implementation uh, Entity to give a voice to fintechs because the CMA9 were, nine big banks were actually coming together and they were creating open banking around it and there was this feel of inequity. Who was representing the rest of the market? So FData was asked by the Treasury Department to, to come and give a voice to the fintechs um, and that voice included a seat at the table to help working on technical standards, data standards and to this day they continue to work with um, the government and all of the participants to build out um, a continually evolving and, and aspirational best practice framework in the UK. It's spread. It's now all around the country. We have chapters in North America, South America, UK, Europe, and I look after the um, ANZ region and hopefully soon to be Southeast Asia in that as well. That is exciting. And from what I have researched and what I have found uh, doing a bit of reading, it seems like UK or Europe is well ahead of the rest of the world about this whole idea of the open data um, and as, as the rest of the world are adopting, where are we at in, in Australia? Where are we at in Asia? Where are we at with, with US? Is, is, can you see they are all coming together? No two countries, no two regions in the world are following the same blueprint. And my theory is there's a number of regions for this. So I think the one thing that the UK has had going um, for it for a long time is the concept of open data is largely the byproduct of the two founders of the Open Data Institute. So that's Sir Nigel Shadbolt and Sir Tim Berners-Lee. And to this day, they, they still operate the Open Data Institute in, in London. Um, given their pedigree and their background in computer science and the creation of the web and AI, they worked out a long time ago that if, once again, the right data, the right fuel was in the right hands, you could start to see transformation occur. So the United Kingdom decided on open banking. There are some, you know, rumours out there as to whether this was as much a, 
you know, an economic boost at the post of the GFC or whether this was this merging of the concept of open data and a need for regulatory reform and to increase competition. For whatever reason, the UK definitely got the jump on the rest of the world, but they're not alone. At the same time as the UK was really getting ready to go live, we had regions like Nigeria and Kenya and Mexico and Japan and South Korea and a number of other countries also developing their versions of open banking and open finance. And in the last three years, that has continued to evolve and more and more regions are either developing or in the process of implementing their version of open banking and open finance. The other thing we've got to consider is one of the biggest elements to open banking, open finance, aside from ensuring the right data is shared along the right technology, is the concept of liability. And liability is often tied to privacy regulation. So one of the reasons I believe that the UK and Europe have been able to launch, um, you know, as successfully and as quickly as they have is because their elements of liability and privacy are often covered already by the GDPR regulations. We don't have that in a lot of other parts of the world. Mm. So this is needing to be built out at the same time as the, the technical elements and you know data rules and standards and all the rest of it. It just means there's a lot more consideration needs to go into it to cover that what would be the framework of the GDPR. I think the GDPR equivalent seem to be taking places in some of the country like um, Australia, um, Singapore, and also other countries that I have a little bit more knowledge. For the country where the privacy is not the biggest priority, how do you see that could be an obstacle to this whole idea of open data and open banking? I think it becomes this 360 um, occurrence where if privacy is not historically the number one barrier to data being shared, it means that people in theory can share data quicker, um, often without the same level of consent from, from a consumer. But the problem is, as soon as anything goes wrong, without those safeguards or those same regulations, it becomes very difficult for remedies to be made quickly and effectively. And these things can tend to drag down an entire system. Hmm. So you're either paying up front saying, we will take the time and develop the right privacy and, and consent frameworks, or it can come and bite you later on if you haven't done that work up front. And we're seeing that in other jurisdictions as well. I think for me, it comes a point, when do the, the rules and the regulations stop and existing privacy frameworks start? Um, and that has been one of the greatest criticisms of, of the Australian consumer data right. Um, parts of the industry have been quite vocal to say we've over-regulated in the absence of as stringent privacy rules as perhaps the GDPR. Right. Thanks for sharing that. Now, before we go too deep, just in case um, for the audience like myself who is unfamiliar with these two terms, can you explain to us what exactly is open banking and open data? 
absolutely. So let's let's flip it. So let's start with open data. Yes. Open data is a concept where data can be shared. It is free. It is shareable. It can be reused, redistributed, accessed by anyone, subject only at most to any of the requirements for attribution or, or share alike. So um, if we break that down, so the data has to be machine readable and human understandable. So if we're in the point where we're looking at a map, for instance, it can be machine readable through code, but a human can look at it and they can understand it. If it was something like um, a table, for instance, providing that anybody could reasonably be expected to access it without the requirement for expensive or proprietary software, it would be considered open data. Mm. Historically, it has come from governments sharing what most considered to be public data. Yep. This is data that is not often easily re-identifiable back to an individual. So it could be a list of budgetary spends from the government over a 12-month framework or access to postcodes as shared by, you know, a, a government to help with the addressing issue. Um, access to government services on a website with a list of addresses, phone numbers, emails, those sorts of things. So it's wide, it's varied. There's been mixed success with it being used, but it has become more and more prevalent and the depth of the data that's being shared has definitely grown over the last 10 years. Open banking is a little bit on the same theory of data sharing, but there's some, some nuances. So it is traditional banking data that a consumer owns or is attributed to a consumer and they can give consent for that data to be shared with a third party. And it is generally via a pre-prescribed uh, technical standard and API, if you like, or the rails as we often call it. So that might be, I wanna compare my mortgage. I'm going to give consent to my existing bank to share my data with another bank, and they're then going to assess whether they can give me a better rate than I'm already on. Or it could be, I'm going to say to my bank, I consent for you to share my data with this app that's going to give me a holistic view of all of my financial health, and then I can make decisions based off being able to see all of my health, financial health in one place on my smart device. Um, so open banking is the complex regulatory framework that allows that data to be shared. When I was doing my research, I could understand the argument and the bond of the concept of the open data because it is financed by the money of the taxpayer and we expect transparency from the government, hence the concept of sharing and open up this data. Yes. What, however, my question then is on the other token, what has led to the open banking, to the concept of the open banking? Is it more of the complete, is it more of the pressure of the competition or, or, or perhaps there are other factors that has led to the, the, this whole idea of the open banking? It's really different for each region. So, there's two uh, what we call motivators. One is open banking that is industry-led and the other open banking that is regulatory-led. 
So if we look at the regulatory first, uh, think Australia, think the UK, and largely there's a couple of reasons why the governments thought um, that now was the right time to share bank data. One was they wanted to increase competition. So in Australia and in the UK, you have this inequability between banks. You have very, very large brands, the big four here and, and what we class as the CMA9 in the UK. And then you have a whole raft of tier two, tier three, regional, rural, boutique, niche, digital banks, whatever you want to call it. But basically, you've got the bigger end of town and the smaller end. And the government decided that if we're really going to lead a digital economy going forward, that everybody sharing data would increase competition and potentially make it a little bit of a fairer, fairer landscape. The second reason is the government's really wanted to encourage innovation. So we're now looking at all of these fintechs. Some of them are startups. Some of them have already been existing, doing other cool things. If they can now get access to data, real-time quality, you know, data that they can just morph into whatever product they're working on or whatever service they're providing, that is going to create innovation in those existing companies but it's going to encourage new ones with new ideas to come on board because access to data, as we all know, and technology is one of the greatest barriers and prohibitors of ideas to ever be realised. They can now get access to that idea, that data. And the other one that you were saying, I think, is regulatory-led in, and... Industry-led. Industry-led. Okay. Yes. Industry, industry led, think more like um, the US, for instance, mm. and what New Zealand was almost finished designing before the government decided they were going to adopt a, a consumer data right, much like Australia. Industry led is where the industry, and it could be the banks, it's generally the fintechs, um, or even the middleware technology companies that often facilitate um, platforms or services to this industry they decided that that sharing of the data would also be a good thing for the industry and that's the right thing for the consumer. So they're the countries that said, um, once again, we don't just want the bigger end of town having all the fun. We all want to be able to share that data. If the consumer gives us right to access their data, you've got to give it to us. And that's really where that industry led was was coming from and they weren't going to wait for the government to intercede they decided to start to solve it themselves sounds great i think um more consumer access more consumer choices more innovation and who knows what sort of uh, new product and services that would be coming out from these i am curious though is in your opinion would these create a more fair and ethical landscape for the consumer in the financial services area? It should. It really should. So if, if a consumer can get access to quality products or services that help them gain more understanding about their own financial situation and thus enable them to make better decisions and have access to those services in a, in a quicker and easier framework, it should lead to better behaviours and better outcomes for the consumer. Now, I say it should because we all know that even in Australia, 
digital literacy isn't 100%. Access mm. to devices aren't at 100%. And we have ageing uh, generations, much like every country, um, that may not trust or even understand smart devices or, or the way that data moves or why am I going to give my bank permission to send my data to somebody else? That sounds risky. Mm. So we could potentially be a generation off really hitting that terminal velocity. We've, we've certainly got more generations crammed into, you know, living right now than ever before. And the majority will embrace some sort of technological solution. But we're not going to get everybody and probably not for a number of years. If a consumer takes the time to do the research, work out what are the products that are going to help them and really do, you know, the homework, yes, they should start to see those benefits coming through. In the banking, there are often two or three segments of the data, but there is one segment of the data is what they call the unbanked segment. So unbanked segment typically consists of the people who probably doesn't have enough credit and hence they are not able to assess uh, the banking services. It is a larger problem in the developing country. Having mm -hmm. have just listened to what you described, it sounds like open banking will primarily benefit the other segment of the customer, but not enough to benefit the, the unbanked segment because of the low literacy about the, the low financial literacy. Do you think that could be the case? Yes and no. So let me explain. I, I currently do some, some um, external consulting to World Bank and the UN and, and other aid organisations in developing countries around digital reform. And the one thing I see is connectivity is the main issue. So in a lot of these developing nations, they just don't have access to the devices. Even if they've got the device, they don't have access to the internet. Mm. There's also huge amounts of the unbanked, as you say. So they're not going to have traditional bank accounts, which means those bank accounts aren't going to be exporting data. They're not going to immediately benefit from that. Other economic um, efforts need to be brought into place so that they can actually take advantage of technology connection and education and access to devices. But there's a middle ground. There are a large amount of, of communities in Australia, in New Zealand, in America that are often at risk of financial hardship or they may not have received a lot of education or financial literacy um, and they can potentially be trapped in this cycle of not only living from paycheck to paycheck, but often maybe not making the best decisions and not planning for a reserve or anything like that. One thing we're starting to see is solutions coming through where people are deliberately trying to assist in raising that financial literacy, in using insights and analytics to start to predict when somebody may find themselves in trouble. So we can start to analyse your bank data to start to see, right, you've got some markers that mean if your behaviours continue, you could find yourself unable to actually service your, you know, your, your rent or your mortgage or whatever that looks like. And I'm most excited about these sorts of technologies that will start to use data to help people make those better life decisions. 
not just get a better rate on the mortgage. I mean, that's exciting, but it's these yeah. things that will start to change behaviours and start to create more knowledge and literacy that I think is the most exciting. And it got me thinking if we were to be able to broaden the concept of the open data and the open banking um, into other sectors, making this bigger of the open data ecosystem, I think it would help the unbanked segment so much more. And the reason why I'm saying that is because I, I know from the past experience and also having interviewed other uh, business leaders in this financial segment, I know that there are other innovations where they were using the mobile phone data, they were using the mobile phone uh, bill, etc. all of those things to help creating the credit scoring to help the, the unbanked segment. So if I were to tie all of those things together into the bigger picture of the open data ecosystem, maybe that's the solution to the um, I think I think you're absolutely onto something there. If if we are saying the only way you can get access to finance is you have to give me all of your transaction records, I'll run serviceability on categorization of your spending, mm. and I won't take anything else into consideration. It's, it's very single faceted. It is exclusionary to so many people that, that may operate in cash. Uh, some of the things I've been seeing out of developing nations, um, parts of Asia, parts of West Africa, for instance, is this concept of how do you create a credit score out of somebody that has never had access to credit before? Yeah. How do you create this concept of... Um, a trial of transactions where I can come and buy one bag of grain for $5 on credit. I pay it back in so many days. Now you'll let me buy two bags, for, you know, for $10. And that starts to create that trail of evidence of data mm. that will assist. Now, what if you can bring in other things such as, uh, as you said, mobile phone records or geospatial records or all sorts of things energy consumption of the house yes i've paid my energy bill on time can that start to create that credit record that mm. is not traditional positive or negative vetting but maybe starts to consider other forms of data and i think the answer is yes it just takes industry to think outside of the box well we are still waiting for the industry to think outside the box do you think this concept of the open banking would pave the way for startup and innovation who would be the, the, the forwarder of testing all of these things out and then the big four will come in, hey, we're going to do that as well. <laughs> I think we need the big four to come in, but I take your analogy. I'm so excited by what I'm seeing. Um, I've, I've had the privilege of judging a number of pitch contests at a university level or at some of the innovation startup hubs, for instance. Mm. And I, just when I think I've heard it all, I'll, I'll judge another pitch comp and there'll be six new ideas. My mind just wants to explode. Um, <laughs> the other day I heard somebody talking about energy data. If you can access energy data, what could you do with it? And they said, well, we could create a guardian app to monitor the energy usage of um, elderly or disabled people. And then if they you know, if their usage trends change, we can notify their next of kin. 
and I sat there and I probed and I went, so you're telling me if um, if an elderly relative cooks on the stove every day between 5.30 and 6.30 and suddenly she doesn't turn a stove on for two days, that would send a warning message to the next of kin, you wow. may want to check. Or if they don't turn their light circuit on in the house for 24 hours. Wow. And I went, this is amazing. This is where we start to use data for good. Mm. And this is the most exciting sort of potential use. And those ideas are just starting to flow. And I think that sort of idea, should that happen or really take off, it will also make it easier. I, I do know and heard of concept where uh, the elderly was wearing the wearable devices and then they were yes. tracking their sort of data to help monitoring and then notify the next of kin. But now that you don't even have to wear that wearable devices, imagine the, the convenience they would enjoy, but still uh, ensuring the safety of the elderly. That's amazing. But but imagine if you did both, Jason. So I I spent some time running a, a predictive analytics health tech company that was all about wearables um, mm -hmm. a number of years ago. Now, imagine if you had wearables linked to something such as consented access to energy or telecommunications mm. data, and that was all being put in to, to monitor or, or provide a guardianship service. So we're not talking people watching or spying on people, but people Correct. with full consent. Um, it's just amazing the ability to be not only reactive, but potentially with algorithms start to be predictive of mm. certain events as well. So you could get to them before they even did have that fall or or had hardship financially and couldn't afford to turn their electricity on anymore. Just data, data is amazing. <laughs> now, coming back to the open banking, I think the question that I have for you is how do open banking and open data benefit the, the bank themselves? It sounds to me like they are literally saying, here's the data, come and take our business. <laughs> and, well, and, and, and I was going to say, and that has been um, the dialogue, especially in Australia, for the first couple of years of it being developed, there's been this sense of we're being forced to hand over our data to the entire market. And what's worse, we have to investigate the requirements. We have to give give the data away for free. We can't even charge for it. Yes. And, and, you know, any competitive advantage we had by coveting our, our customers' data is now gone. And that's when I start to talk to them about, you're not thinking about this logically. You're not saying, now I can get access to any other bank's data. Now I can get access to my consumer's data with their consent. I have to keep saying with their consent. Um, from other providers, what can I do as a bank with all of my resources and people and, and budget that can really start to have that competitive advantage? So now we start looking at twofold benefit for the bank. One is who can they partner with? What are the new apps? What are the new services? What digital solutions can they come up with if they didn't just have their data, but they could get consumers' data from anywhere else in Australia? So what can they be doing? So stop thinking about the we're being forced to hand over our data. Now they're going to have more access to data than they've ever had before. 
But secondly, and this is what I believe passionately, the internal efficiencies that they will gain by suddenly having to create almost a single source of quality data to be able to export it will then lead to significant efficiencies internally. So I'll give you I'll give you a quick example. I switched a mortgage of mine from one of the big four to another big four, you know, six months ago. Mm. When I went to do it, walked into the branch and they handed me the proverbial shopping list of all of the documents and records and statements and everything I needed to bring to the home lending manager. Now, I'm an ex-banker. I knew this was coming. I still groaned and complained. <laughs> so I went home and I amassed it all and I took it in and I handed it to the home lending manager who was lovely and I answered all the questions and then I had to go and get more documents and bring them back and more statements and this statement wasn't the right date so I had to go get another. Anyway, you get the picture. This process was painful and drawn out and long and it was perfectly normal. And I looked at him and I said, can you imagine the day when I can get onto your app and say, I would like to consider applying for a mortgage. Can you please give me the best rate? And all I need to do is click a consent box. Immediately, you have access to all of my data. It's going to enter your internal system. You can check my credit record and my serviceability, categorization, all of that. And you will be able to say, Jamie's a good customer. Here's the rate we'll offer her. I will review it and go, yeah, it sounds good. I'll then tick another box that says I accept your mortgage and a second box that says, please go ahead and move my mortgage over from the other provider and settle it. And it'll be that simple. And internally, they won't have to chase shopping lists of documents and all they have to do is wait for those boxes to be ticked. I explained that to this home lending manager. Every time I walk past that branch and it's my local branch, he comes running out the doors asking me, is there any news? Is this coming? When are they getting it? <laughs> and I have to say, be patient. It's coming. It's coming. But he can't wait because as staff, they can see how open banking is going to revolutionise their life. Mm. And if they then have time to give more attention and customer service to the customers, they're going to enjoy their jobs so much more than they currently do. And the customers are going to feel truly appreciated and wanted. And I think that's the type of internal efficiency that banks can really experience. I can imagine the day that it comes because I can relate to the pain that you went through totally. I think everyone can. I know I am no different than everyone else. But <laughs> Just, I think the most painful part is knowing it's coming, knowing that it's it's just a matter of time away and still having to go through the, the traditional process. It was, yeah, it was painful. <laughs> On that note, what are some of the challenges that banks face in adopting open banking models, whether it is a existing bank or a new one? When this first was introduced, I think the perfect normal reaction was banks, especially the larger, oh, even the smaller banks, let's be honest, separated it into two categories. The risk professionals were told, make sure we comply and we don't get sued or fined or whatever, we don't fall afoul of our banking license. And then the devs, who are usually 
you know, change in a basement somewhere, we're told make sure our data is ready to be exported and make sure our APIs connect and they meet the technical requirements, make it happen. And largely for the better part of two years, nobody else in the bank had even heard of open banking or was discussing it. <laughs> okay. So that's one thing. It was this very, very disjointed, very specific parts of the bank were told to make it happen, but nobody else was aware of it or getting excited. So it's been very fractured internal of some brands, most brands, to actually comply. They're only mm. just starting to see the potentials for being recipients themselves and not just being forced to, to hand over their data. But then you've got to also look at banks are incredibly complex organisations with many, many different software and platforms and legacy products, and they may all have different data formats. The data may not always be clean. Traditional data from passbook accounts that have been digitised may not even have the same date format. There is literally so much work that must be done to clean and to morph this data into the format that needs to be exported. But it has been a massive, massive task for some brands have been, you know, taking a lot more effort than others. I think the digital banks have had a distinct advantage as in they tend to have less products, probably less time on the books and their data may already be in a format that's ready to be exported. But especially the bigger banks here and the UK was no different. It was a massive effort to even be able to have their data ready to export, let alone building those rails to export the data. And now there are some hard deadlines that have been set for the bank here in Australia in multiple stages or multiple phase. I presume it is the same in overseas as well, but in the context of Australia, what are these hard deadlines and how are we tracking? Yeah, <laughs> um, Australia is taking a very unique approach. So most of those deadlines have been hit already. So there's two types of data largely that's being shared, transaction data. So this has been broken into types of products or accounts. So a home mm. loan versus a credit card versus your transaction account. And then it's also been separated into what's called product reference data. So this might be the T's and C's around a mortgage held at one bank versus another. They then separated it even further into the major banks and the non-majors. And they made the major banks start to export the different types of data across different deadlines. So that initial sharing of data was pushed back two, three different times for various reasons. But now we've got the majors sharing both the transaction records and the product reference data, and the non-majors are sharing the lion's share, um, which is, it's been slow. The deadlines have come. So this is the deadlines of when they are mandated to be ready to share the data. Mm. But the other thing is the accreditation. So the theory is you can't share the data till you're accredited. You can't get accredited until you meet all of the guidelines. And <laughs> everybody knew that the 1st of July was, you know, the, the D-Day for all of the banks across the line. And Australia sadly missed that D-Day epically. Um, the lion's share of banks weren't across the line by the 1st of July. 
a number of them had done the right thing and notified the ACCC, who is the, the regulator responsible for accrediting, and had asked for extensions. Some were granted, mm. some weren't, but there was a huge amount of um, the market that just didn't show up, hadn't applied, hadn't said they're going to be late to the party and just didn't show up. Now, today, we're in February, most of them are now accredited. Uh, most of them are now complying. However, there is conjecture in the market as to how well they are complying, whether that data is flowing, whether it's accurately flowing, whether there's technical glitches. Uh, some just seem to be struggling mm. to, to really export the data that they are mandated to, to export. But, you know, it, it took the UK three years of being live to get 3% of the population able to use open banking. Wow. We're, we're really, you know, 18 months into it. We've, we've still got a way to go. So we're, we're not at panic stations yet. And it is, it is definitely almost, almost there. Would this be pushing out the open insurance open supernation to come into the picture? <laughs> I'm going to say no, and I'll explain why. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll explain why. So open banking was always designed to be the first cab off the rank. So when Scott Farrell in 2018 to 2019 handed out his report, his review into open banking, and he broke ranks and said, we should have a consumer data right, and we're not just going to do banking. We're going to do other things. In that report, it went on to say, we probably should bed down banking first and do it properly before we try to bite off more than we can chew. Mm. So the concept was always that we would do one sector and then we would do another and another and another. What wasn't set was what those other sectors would be. And as times passed, we've that's become clearer. So Open Energy goes live by 1st of November. Open Telecommunications has now been confirmed as the next cab off the rank, and it is anticipated that that should follow suit and probably be November in 2023. But there are a number of other things that were announced last month by Minister Hume, who has the remit for CDR in Australia, and that is um, one is the future direction, so I'll explain that in a second. So the rest of the rest of what the world would say is open banking because all we've focused on is the sharing of data at this stage. Mm. And the second is that open finance, the worst kept secret in the Australian data community, would actually be going ahead. So hold that thought. We'll go back to the future directions. The two areas that Australia didn't employ straight up was um, payments initiation and general action initiation or right access, as it's called in the UK and a lot of other countries. So we had read access, but we didn't implement right access straight up. So as soon as we're talking about payments or the ability to switch a product, carry out an instruction of the consumer, that's the second half. And the government has finally committed that they will be working to bring that in. It could be 12 months, 24 months, five years. We don't have a defined roadmap as yet. But open finance, 
the theory is it will include general insurance, superannuation or pensions as we see overseas, investments, non-bank lenders, probably BNPL, buy now, pay later, a whole heap of things. Each of those are sectors in their own right. They make up the theory of open finance, but they are massive sectors. We're probably not going to see them all come online at the same time. And mm. depending on the lessons we can learn from dealing with mandated exporters of data and banking, hopefully each segment can be brought on quicker and quicker than the one before because they should be able to design a blueprint that can just be applied with, with a few little tweaks. The idea of the open finance or open banking, it sounds to me it will benefit the consumer domestically as they are, as they encourage innovation and switch up the product. I am, however, curious to know that should the world starting to open data everywhere, cross-border payment is one of the hardest things in financial world. Yes. How would that help or could that potentially help with the cross-border payment or anything has got to do with the cross-border in the financial services? Look, it's something that has not been discussed at length. And it's it's almost like the elephant in the corner that anybody that's been involved in banking and finance knows that the world is 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 much more linear than ever before. People move, trade moves, tourism, mm. there's a number of reasons. Plus you, you you know, family remittances, there's so many reasons people send money cross borders. What we should start to see is as those large multinational um, facilitators start to become accredited in different regions, then the ability from to benefit from standardised formats, standardised technology, standardised APIs should start to see what can be deployed in Australia might also then be deployable in Singapore or what we can see in the US might also then be able to be replicated in the UK. It's the hope. It is the hope, but it is going to require, I think, almost this, this global push to establish what is global best practice, what can be picked up and shared and the lessons can be learned from other jurisdictions. And it's something at FDATA we constantly talk about with our members, especially our larger multinational members. They are very, very keen to say, how can we create this interoperability that means we don't need to build a product in Australia and a different one in Singapore and a different one in the US. No Correct. company wants to keep recreating technology that, that you know, isn't agnostic and can't talk. So it is something that I feel like industry is going to really drive that demand far more than government will. I would be looking forward to hear more about that now. Share with us more in the context of data analytics. What, what do open data, open banking, open finance mean for the analytic professional? It is incredibly exciting, but it's also not going to be the be all and end all that analytics needs. So let me explain. Access to data is the lifeblood of anybody that does analytics. Correct. Ac access to quality data is the lifeblood access to any data we've we've probably all heard the analogy rubbish in rubbish out if you don't have good quality data if you've got null fields or incomplete or, or 
jumble. Your algorithm, your AI can't run. Mm. It's like putting diesel into a car that requires unleaded. It just doesn't work. So from an analytics potential, in theory, the more data you can get hold of that has a standardised format, the easier it is for you to create common algorithms that can run to, to solve you know, issues, problems, enhance customer experience, whatever it is. Open data works that way when you can get access to large amounts of data that meets those standardised formats. Consumer data is a little bit different because you can only get access to it with consumer consent. So we're talking about specialty algorithms to solve, you know, set problems, but you will only get enough data to really come up with this customised solution for your, your targeted users, the consumers that are given consent. But if you can get enough consumers that use your app, enough consumers that, that log on to your platform, and you can get sufficient data to hone and really perfect those algorithms, that's where we're going to see commercial value. And that's where I think we're going to start to see investment because people are going to see that long-term potential where you now have absolute unlimited access to data if you can get people excited about your product or service. So analytics, absolutely coolest ticket in town if you can get quality data. Apart from that, what would be other challenges for the open data in the data and analytics? The biggest challenge that I'm often asked about is how do you get quality data? Mm. What is quality data? Um, every year I, I lecture the Australian governments on how to raise the quality of their data, even before they export it, before they share it as open data. Mm. And there's seven widely accepted characteristics of quality data. You know, we talk about accuracy and relevancy and timeliness and the list goes on. Granularity, uniqueness, context, all of that. But it comes back to just common sense. If you put a table and you've got 12 headings across the top, do you have 12 lines of data? Do you have headings where there's nothing underneath it? What is the point? Do you mm. have headings where every six square is blank or it should be a number and instead you've just got a, a special character in there? We start to look at whose job is it to ensure the quality of data? Every single person in an organisation that touches it has a responsibility. And I find largely the biggest issues around data quality is staff don't know whose job it is haven't been given permission, haven't received the right education, don't feel empowered. So these issues just get compounded and compounded. And by the time the data is shared, it's pretty much useless. So I agree. And I think one of the biggest way to solve that problem efficiently is to how to collect some of those data um, automatically in the background. But that is probably another Oh, look, I think I feel like we could have a whole podcast about raising the quality <laughs> of data. But, you know, from a conceptual point of view, you can't do analytics if you don't have quality data. Exactly. Now, other than in UK, are there any other country that have already op adopted uh, open banking efficiently? And what do you think has contributed to their success? 
no no country in the world has truly finished building it and got it right. I'm going to be hated by countries all over the world for that statement, but I'll explain. <laughs> there will be countries that will be industry-led, like the US, that will have pockets of success and they'll be saying, yep, yeah, we, you know, we solved certain problems, we freed up the flow of data. They might have solved six problems, they've now created eight. Or we could have countries like Japan that said, we're going to be industry-led, we're going to create APIs but we're not going to set a limit of what we're going to charge for people to access those APIs. So no fintechs could actually afford to connect to the banks and no data flowed. Um, you've got countries such as Brazil that is very advanced in their implementation of open finance. And basically they've adopted their version of the GDPR that took care of a lot of the base work around privacy and, and consent called the LDPR. But just due to the sheer size and volume of institutions and organisations, they've had to push back their start date because they it was incredibly ambitious, hoping they could get it all finished by the end of last year. Um, you've still got jurisdictions like Hong Kong and um, my understanding is there are limitations around changing the regulatory parameters that potentially need to be changed, you know, for, for whatever is going on there. Singapore, easy to change the regulations, but we're talking many, many different levels and types of, of companies, a lot of them multinational, which makes it difficult from a jurisdiction. You've then got Nigeria and Kenya that have had their own challenges. They haven't had the funding. There's not necessarily the you know, access to connectivity, all sorts of things going on. Canada coming on board, Mexico. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say in the next five years, you will see a number of companies that have got fully functioning live open banking slash open finance regimes and no two are going to look anything like any other. Wow. Imagine all the complexity. Yes. The missed opportunities that standardization from a cross-borders perspective could actually be achieved. Now, I'd love to be wrong. I'd love to see it start this way and then somebody go, huh, maybe we do need to bring these systems closer together and we start to see this global attempt to align the at least the technical side of it. That would be a start. Love to be to hear more about that, I'll perhaps be part of that one. But my final question for you to close off this interview before my dessert question is, what is your advice for a startup or innovator who want to adopt open banking or open data? I've run a couple of startups. I've run some scale-ups. Um, <laughs> it's difficult. It is difficult. You know, aside from the challenges of there is a um, a resource war out there, people are literally poaching each other's developers at the moment. There's all sorts of things going on. There's monetary restraints. The cost of doing business is getting higher and higher, and I don't want to see more doom and gloom. Basically, if you think you have got that unicorn idea, if you think, you know, you're an ex-banker and you know exactly what the market needs and you've got a really great idea, Number one, do your research and make sure what you need to do to actually step up and participate. So what are the regulatory obligations, privacy, how do you get accredited, what's the tech standards you need, 
insurance, how you have a fit for, for per, um, fit person test for accreditation. There are no end of things in multiple regimes that you need to meet. Then work out what do you think the market share is out there? So if your idea is novel and you're just going to assist a very small segment of Gen Ys who do a very nuanced task, and there's only 26 million people in Australia and maybe there's less than 500,000 in that category, you might only get 5%. Is it really an idea that's ever going to, to make money? Mm. So what I would say to any tech entrepreneurs out there, do your research. Do your market research, work out effectively, can you even charge for your service? Who existing, which bank would want your product or service? What do you need to do in the first two to three years before you sell it? Can you sell it to a bank? Can it actually solve a problem that they've got? Um, I have so many theories on this. We don't have time to go through them all. So research, education, market appraisal, that'd be my, my three big tips. Can they come to you and add data to get help? Should they need one? Look, I'm more than happy to have people reach out. Um, we help um, fintechs. We have a membership basis. We have fintechs that are literally two, three people just starting out right through to, to massive multinationals. Um, and if I'm not in a position to help, I, I certainly know other people in the ecosystem that I can point people in the right direction. Thank you so much for that one. My two standard questions to finish off this interview. The first one first would be, what is your most important first principle? The one that I love to hate is the concept that there is too much information out there. If we take information to be a segment of data, I you already know, Jason, I totally disagree. There can never be too much data out there. The right data in the right hands at the right time will change the world. So how can you have too much of it? I think no, that's my favourite first principle to hate. And what is one book that you have read and thought it would have been better for your younger self to have? I came across a YouTube speech uh, a couple of years ago now by a retired Navy SEAL Admiral, uh, Admiral, Admiral William H. McRaven. He was asked to give a speech to a graduating class of his um, alma mater university. Um, and he sat there and said to his wife, what can, I, what can I impart? I'm so old, I'm out of touch, don't know what the kids are into anymore. And she said, you've got all these life lessons. Why don't you just go and tell the kids some of your lessons? So he wrote a book called Make Your Bed. And it was the 10 lessons that he got out of his SEAL training in his life that can be applied to anything anybody does. Start off the day by making your bed, complete a task. If you succeed at nothing else for that day, you can at least say you've done something right. Mm. Find someone to help you paddle. Measure a person by the size of their heart, not the size of their flippers or their wallet, as we would say. Get over being a sugar cookie and keep moving forward. So life is going to throw curveballs. Get over it. Don't be afraid of circuses. Sometimes you have to slide down the obstacle head first. I love that one. I have done it. Don't back down from sharks. You must be your very best in the darkest moment. Start singing when you're up to your neck in mud. I think we can all relate to that one. And don't ever, ever ring the bell. In other words, never give up. And I think, oh gosh, we, we can all learn that. So the book's called Make Your Bed. 
absolutely thoroughly love it and wish I had read it 30 years ago. I love it. Thank you so much, Jamie, uh, for this podcast interview. I learned so much about the open banking, open data, open finance, uh, much more than I expected. And I'm sure that listeners around the world would enjoy it and someone uh, would take more action, uh, whether it's the bank or the regulator, uh, would push this forward. I can imagine all of these benefits that the consumer would enjoy. Thank you so Absolutely. much. Can I add one thing, Jason, before you go? Please. I am hoping to put together a massive um, digital future of digital economy for open banking, open finance, open data in Australia in October. Um, looking at holding it in, in Queensland, potentially the Gold Coast, if not Brisbane. Um, I literally want to issue an invitation to everybody. Keep an eye out on it. Um, I'll be putting more information out through FDAT or ANZ, but especially to all of our neighbours in Southeast Asia, New Zealand, even the US, love to have everybody come over and really share that global perspective. I think we can all learn so much from each other and just keep an eye out for that conference. That would be fantastic. I'll make sure to um, get more details from you about these conferences and then share it on the website, share it on the social media and especially in this podcast, so that all of those people who are watching or listening to this will come and enjoy the very best of the Gold Coast and the sunshine that we have got to offer in Queensland. <laughs> Absolutely. Look, thank you so much for your time, Jason. I thoroughly enjoyed being a part of your podcast. Thank you, Jamie.